재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵. I'm kind of excited for this week's Get to Know segment because we're meeting someone who I might describe as a one-man microcosm of modern media history. That's kind of how his life has gone. At a young age, he had a love for theater that propelled him on stage, and then he became an actor, writer, and producer of one of my favorite younger era shows, The State, which aired for a long time on MTV and had a huge cult following, and I was definitely one of the fans as well. After leaving television, he moved eventually out to Korea. This is where he lives now, and he's currently an assistant professor in the Graduate School of Communication and Arts at Yonsei University. University, teaching technology, creating art, running a lab in Innovation Park, and playing around with AR and VR. We're going to talk about it all now. His name is Todd Halubek. Welcome, Todd. Hi, how are you doing? It's great to have you here. What an interesting life you've had, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a roller coaster, isn't it? I really Let's get the state stuff out of the way right now. I'm going to indulge myself okay. as the host because I really loved that show back then when it's on. We can promote it because it's off the air, uh, and nobody gains or loses from talking about it. The state, as I recall it, was sort of a vaguely Saturday Night Live-ish kind of show, sketch comedy by a bunch of young, crazy kids. Mm-hmm. You were a crazy kid back then. Yeah, I, we were basically a uh, college age yeah. when we started. And we started by producing two live shows while we were in college. And we would use a university space, sometimes a theater, sometimes not a theater. Sometimes we would do it in Washington Square Park. And that's where we kind of honed our live skills. Mm. And we were, you know, I consider we were some of the lucky ones as yeah. right out of graduating We were introduced to MTV, and we actually did a show called You Wrote It, You Watch It, Okay, which was hosted by Jon Stewart. Wow. It was like where Jon Stewart got his... Pre-Daily Show, Jon Stewart. Yeah. And that's completely separate from the state, right? Or was that within the state? We We were one of the teams making these little sketches about people's real life stories. So they would get interviewed on the street... You know, I dropped my hot dog, and it looks like it ran down the street. And then we would reenact the story in our own bizarre uh-huh. uh, interpretation. From there, we got the interest of executives who were trying to get more content. And then we uh, developed our own show for the network. I mean, this was pre-internet, pre-everything. It was mm-hmm. in the cable era mm-hmm. when cable channels were blowing up, right? Yeah. Uh, and so MTV, which previous to that had been just videos, was start. You were the first sort of non-music video content, weren't you? Yeah, we were uh, the first humans. Yeah. To uh, do a show, our neighbors were uh, Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> Right? right. So we were right next door to Beavis and Butthead, and they did a cartoon. Yeah. So it was Beavis and Butthead and the state were like their first foray into original perfect block. I used to watch that as a block, too. (laughs) Why'd you call it the state? Because uh, as a group of 11, everything was a huge discussion and a debate and passionate pleas for what we believed in because we were young and energetic. And um, for maybe three days, as most arguments ran— For three days, (laughs) we just kept throwing out names, and we had, like, this long list of things like... What were alternate names? Like, Medium Head Boy, (laughs) um, uh, Betty's Annoying Friends, Uh you know, just, like, all these names. And we had... And finally, I think one of us was sitting there reading the New York Times, and all of a sudden, they look up and they say, how about the state? And it was the most... Like, the... 
communal energy of the 11 of us, we all stood up and got up on chairs and started saying, state, state, state. And it was like all of us without communicating, but communicating. Yes. It became the state. And so it's, it's stuck. Yeah. And there's no meaning behind it at all. You know? <laughs> you know, it was just like it worked for us. I wish it was a little bit more accessible. It's, you can find clips on YouTube and stuff like that. I'd love to see it air again somewhere or other, but it's almost ahead of its time. It was really, you know, if, you, mm. if this thing were to come out in the digital era, I dare say mm. it would blow up a lot more than it did. Although it, I, I want to repeat, it was a big success back then. Uh, sketch comedy on a music channel. And you had so many amazing talents. Mm. These were not amateurs. These were people that really went on to great careers, right? Sure. Michael yeah. Ian Black, he's now mm-hmm. writing books and blowing up Twitter. And you've got A-list actors that have mm-hmm. come out of it. You were the, the man at the center. You were the, the sort of hub of the spokes, weren't you? Yeah. You founded yeah. it. Yeah. And you also did some acting. I actually have a clip on standby. You had a, a famous character, a recurring character. Mm-hmm. His name was Chicken Sandwich Carl. Yeah, or just Carl. Carl. And he got yelled at for He it. got yelled yeah. at. Let's hear the clip. Chicken Sandwich Carl! And there you go. That's the <laughs> clip. That was the hook of the thing. Yeah. They were just kind of yelling at you. Yeah. What was the what was the gist of that? It was a it was a fast food restaurant where the you know, it was a play on the hierarchy uh-huh. and Carl was at the very bottom. Uh-huh. And so at first it was funny that Carl got yelled at for everything, but the guy who was yelling at Carl, his boss comes in and you see the hierarchy shift. Uh-huh. And every new hierarchy guy is just meaner and angrier. <laughs> and I, I think finally some guy comes in like a professional assassin and he's, you know, and everyone everyone runs. Yeah. And Except Carl, who I think ends up just standing there, you know, because he's a low man on the totem pole. He That's right. Anything just, to, I, I, I'm here to take yep. the abuse. Go ahead. Yep. Sir, may I have another. A lot of comedy of the absurd. You know, you had these sort of entire sketches built around one line. I remember mm-hmm. the Italian family that was waiting for the Pope to show yeah. up. And, hey, yeah. comes yeah, the, the Pope. Pope. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, you guys were juiced up. You had mm. a lot of energy and you'd take one idea and carry it to ridiculous lengths, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It, it, so that was your young life. Did you mm-hmm. maintain that mode of creativity as you progressed or did you mellow out? One of the things that I carry with me from that time is this sort of ensemble group energy idea generating uh, process mm-hmm. because what you find is is when you have a little bit of everyone's personality in that idea it has a quality that doesn't that you can't put your finger on you're like I love it but I don't know why yeah. and it's kind of comes from this you know vague pool of everyone throwing their themselves yeah. into an idea so i think having those beginnings has only enhanced everything else I've done after that. Do you ever get a feeling like, man, it's a real shame. I mean, you had this energetic, hyper-charismatic 11 people, and you had such awesome content, but you were under the sort of thumb of a corporation, and you were doing something on basic cable, which as a medium has more or less, you know, is is walking dead. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas nowadays, you can put up a channel of you playing video games or you eating hot dogs and you'll get 300 million subscribers with that kind of quality content nowadays you'd you'd be off the hook you ever feel bad that it was in that era and not a more modern one i I think i think that was the best time for it now you know we knew this was coming right where everyone was going to become their own content producer back then you knew that yeah yeah it was because it was obvious i think 
one of the things, or like a through line through what I was trying to do, uh, maybe this will sound a little weird, but back then, you know, nobody really used the word multimedia. Okay. Right? So it was a new word. It wasn't even a buzzword yet. So when we were doing live theater, we're like, oh, it's a multimedia show. So we'd show video, we'd have live music and performance. And, you know, and then multimedia became the thing. Yes. Right? Then you had to have a cross, you know, everything was like cross all the talents and all mm-hmm. the skills and all the media. So, you know, early on, we were able to see what was going to happen That's with right. cable and computers. And you, you knew everyone was going to be able to create their own content. So, actually, at the time that we did it, it was perfect because now there's too much. Okay. Right? So now everybody has a comedy. Well, actually, now everyone has like a comedy Instagram. Everybody's got a shtick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's their hook right. to get the viewers? And for us, it was just make ourselves laugh. Yeah, during that period when you were on sort of early mid-90s, everybody sort of had this sense that uh, there's going to be an earthquake because mm-hmm. we could see digital technology starting to take hold. Yeah. Right? And people were starting to hear about the internet. You know, mm-hmm. I can remember my first email from a friend. Right, and I was like, right. oh, my God, mm-hmm. I didn't have to wait several days for this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, did you know back? Because nowadays you are neck deep in this media arts mm. stuff. Is that when you said, OK, I'm going to get my hand on the pulse of media and, and follow it? A lot of it was I wanted to see it happen. Okay. So I wanted to be a part of making it happen. You cool. Know? I remember thinking back then I wanted to go to MIT Media Lab and, you know, sort of follow and all that. Mm-hmm. Turns out I'm not that scientific. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so numbers. <laughs> mm-hmm, sure. But, uh, Darn you, numbers. <laughs> you did go in that sort of. Mm. Oh, tell me, let's just do a quick breakdown of your post super successful comedy show when you were what? Yeah, in your 20, 20s, yeah, right? Early 20s, yeah. Um, so you that must have been like being on a mountaintop, you know? Yeah. Huge opportunity. And then where do you go from there is the question. Exactly. What was the very next step? Uh, the very next step was uh, sitting in my apartment saying, what am I going to do? Mm. Right? Because I had spent all this time training and practicing and working and building a network for acting. And, and one day I realized there's so much more to the world, right? So I took, uh, I took two years and I started teaching myself technology, programming, anything I could get my hands really? on. Okay. Like you say, it was early internet, so there wasn't a YouTube video to teach me how to build my own server farm, right? Yeah. So I took two years, and I said, you know what? If I stick with this for two years, I should pursue it. It isn't like a fad. It isn't just, you know, something. So after two years, I started looking for graduate schools, and I got really lucky. I've, I found one at NYU called the Interactive Telecommunications Program, and I spent 10 years there. That's a whole new skills. concept back then, right? Yeah. It was, it was so unique. They're like you program computers and microprocessors and make media art and you can do all sorts of amazing things. And I thought, you know, what, I, I went to NYU for undergraduate. What, where's this program? Right. And it turned out it was right upstairs from where I was in acting school. I had no idea. That's amazing. Yeah, did the people that you, when you were in those early days in school, did they have big visions about what's going to happen with this kind of media, two-way, I guess they called it back then when you would watch TV, lean back media, mm. and then eventually became lean forward media mm-hmm. where you can engage. Right. So did they have, were, were those people techno wonks or were they entertainment people like yourself? Uh, they were all types. In fact, the really interesting thing about the program and the people I was working around was it was more important to find people who have never touched a computer and see what they do with it. 
because that's where you're going to get these original concepts. And people who have been programming their whole life are kind of locked into a, this can happen, this can't happen. And it's very hard to get out of that frame of mind. So in, in finding someone who's like a professional dancer who, who hadn't touched a computer, they would do the far more interesting things than somebody who had had a history of programming sure. you know, in crazy languages and stuff. So, so that was sort of an impetus for you know where I started looking. Is I'm like, what what haven't I done, and can I tackle that? Yeah. All right. So a media arts career is born. You know, you start to fudge those lines between uh, the techno nerd and the creative type. Mm-hmm. Where does that road lead to Korea? Ah. Uh, Korea being, you know, incredibly wired, right? And uh, a lot of the technology here is just very advanced. Made it a great place to move to. But mostly I'd lived in New York for 25 years. I'd had three different careers. And I was, I was getting a little bored. Okay. You know, DJs were all, went from true vinyl to their laptops. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the, right. you know, just everything across the board was pointing to the fact that I was becoming that old guy. Who was like, not my city anymore, you know, and, and yeah. you know, so I was like, okay, either it's time to... Your kids have you know, it too easy. Exactly. You never <laughs> carried records in your life. Right. And so, you know, an opportunity opened up, like the universe was just sort of like, hey, Todd, there's an opening at this university. Uh-huh. Why, why don't you apply? That's great. And so I did, and I taught at Sumyong uh, for about six, for six years, and I've just now moved to Yonsei. So you've settled in quite nicely into Korea. Is, does Korea suit you? You know, it does, actually, in a, in a way that I was completely not expecting. Everything felt really comfortable. There was no culture shock. There was no, you know, oh, my God, I'm, I'm on the other side of the planet. Yes. I kind of came in and just started doing what I do, and I found that I was able to do it, able to do it better than when I was in New York. Because you're being left alone, aren't you? I, I guess so. <laughs> I, you know, it's weird, cause, but I feel uh, probably more comfortable here than I did while I was in New York City. Really? Yeah, it's really, like, I didn't expect it, but it, it, I'm very happy that it happened. Well, and I share these sentiments with you as well. And I heard um, a podcast conversation one time where somebody really summed up sort of the why do you stay in Korea question that expats mm. get asked all the time. And it's that you can choose where to point your attention and your obligations. Mm. You can either try to go local in Korea and engage and, uh, you know, mix and match with the culture, or you can just be a Martian. You know, mm. you can be on your island and pick and choose how you want to divide your attention on any given day. So, I mean, you can, you know, focus 1,000% on whatever project you're working, mm-hmm. I'll bet, you know, and, and other days, talk to people. Oh, that's very articulate. Well... I mean, I I'd never thought about I it. I talk that way. good. <laughs> <laughs> the way you put that, it, it seems like whenever I whenever I travel back to America, I immediately start missing the food of Korea. Yeah, and so I'm like drawn back. I'm like, yeah, I'm starving. You know? Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's an addictive property. A lot of the, the yeah. food here and the the fermented things, the mm-hmm. pickled things, the spicy things. Yeah, it really does sort of leave an imprint. So when you now teach young people at, uh, you just now started at Yonsei. Yeah, it's right? my first week. First yeah. week? Yeah. And what kind of things are you impressing upon young minds? What, uh, what's the content? Mm. As an overall, like an umbrella, it's how to, how to work with technology, right? So we look at like the next 10, 20 years, you know, they are going to be jobs that we don't even conceive of right now. So the only thing we can prepare those students for in the future 
is how to work with new technologies and approach things they're unfamiliar with. Yeah. Right? Don't young people look at you? I mean, you're not an old man, but you're older than the, the, the students. Don't they look at you with a certain arrogance and say, hey, I'm a digital native. I know technology. Well, yeah. Where do you get off telling me about technology? Yeah. Yeah. You come across some people like that. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, I, I think, you know, I don't just talk about it. I, I show them. I do it right there in front of them. And I think since um, a lot of things we're trying to teach students is, you know, it's, it's, you know, you can either say you can either be one of one of two kinds of people where it's um, some people just want it to work their technology and some people want to know how it works. Uh-huh. Right. It's like driving a car. You can either understand carburetors mm-hmm. and stuff or you exactly. can just drive it. Exactly. So I try to find students who want to know how it works because that's going to empower them in the future. And that's what's going to put them in control of their life. But if you spend your your relationship with technology just, you know, you know, just letting it work, then it starts to tell you what to do. That's right. Right? And then all of a sudden you're, you use voice commands. You have to talk in a certain way so that it, you know, so that it works for you. It's sort of like, um, you know, autocorrect. Yeah. Teaching you how to spell. Or predictive text. Exactly. Yeah. I, remember, I, I don't know. It might have been Clay Shirky or somebody like that saying program or be programmed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You write the program and understand the lexicon of what you're dealing with. Yes. Uh, the technological concepts, mm-hmm. menu-driven this, and yes. user interface, and all of these things. Yeah. Or just be sort of, uh, you know, a piece of flotsam in the tide, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're trying to empower young people basically. Exactly. Yeah. I mean if they want to have a if they want to have a positive and proactive role in building the future, uh they have to understand how it works. And by saying that, uh I don't mean to say everyone has to be a programmer. You know, I think you know I I, I like this STEM education movement and getting kids to understand programming. I think this is very important. But saying that everyone needs to be a programmer is is sort of like, you know, many years ago, everyone had to play the piano. Right. Or everyone had to have a sport or everybody had to, you know. And what you do is you end up with people who like end up, you know, it backfires and they hate sports or they hate piano. or So instead of developing developing a bunch of program haters, we make it available so that if they want to play with it, and kind of get into it by their own curiosity, that's great. Um, but I think people, everyone should be aware. That's it. Right? I used to know a tech educator, and she said, you don't need to be a programmer, but you need to be able to talk to programmers. Exactly. You've got to have the lexicon. On you know? the money. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And so, with that in mind, where do you think the big sort of blue ocean uh, areas are? What, what do kids need to know today for 15 years from now? Oh, I think I think they need to understand where their data goes and not just, you know, like who's holding on to your data, but every time okay. I type something into, you know, a you know, what you know, a social media app, what exactly happens to that? Okay. Um how is, you know, how how does electricity work? Like have basic electricity. Yeah. You know, I know I over you know, in Asia, a lot of students I've met, they said, oh, yeah, we covered basic electricity in grade school. But, you know, in America, you know, we're putting our finger in the outlet until, you know, way, you know, into college as a prank, you know. Right. So, you know, like basic, just understand the basics of what makes something digital, mm-hmm. what makes something mm-hmm. analog. Um, 
you know, why, you know, why, why does the street lamp change? Yeah. Why does your, your, you know, bank card let you go into the subway? Yeah. You know, like understand how it works and then, uh, and then you're empowered to do something about it. The natural world that's behind the visual, virtual world in a way. Uh, that is so interesting. I get worried sometimes about, uh, top heavy over reliance on technologies that are vulnerable mm-hmm. to attack to everything from you know hacking to mm-hmm. EMPs or whatever you want to um, so vulnerabilities that are inherent mm-hmm. in depending too much on technology and that goes right down to all of your productivity apps and things you're signing your life away sometimes mm-hmm. yeah. you know and if you play one of those apps like you know which superhero are you uh, you are you are clicking an end user agreement yes and that's Kind of how we got all those uh, issues that we're talking about yeah. in the U.S. with the election of 2016, yes. right? Exactly. In fact, I think that that contest survey thing was huge. Yeah, contributor yeah. to that. Yeah, humongous. So, forearming these young people, giving them not only a creative mind but a defensive mind. That sounds like a very cool way to um, to go forward in a career that is really very distinguished. Oh, I didn't get a chance to ask you about this AR, VR, mm. uh, augmented virtual reality uh, reality Innovation Park, is it called? Yeah, yeah. Just tell me a bit about that before uh, we wrap up. Innovation Park is up in Bulguang, and uh, it started as sort of a, a startup center, and it's grown into this huge incubator for new ideas for improving our world. Cool. Uh, they have Fab Lab, they have Food Lab, they have Startup Center, and uh, we have a augmented reality, virtual reality lab where we develop what's called social digital innovation projects that are meant to help people using augmented reality or virtual reality. It's worth checking out. Maybe we'll head out there and uh, do a little bit of a field project on it sometimes. It, it's actually open to anybody. It's uh, people come there on the weekends, and they have festivals, and people picnic, and you can walk around. It's a public space. Cool. I will follow up with you on that. Todd Hallubeck, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I'm still a fan of the state after all of these years. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. It's been great.